So uh, when I was in high school and uh, middle school, my dad moved around. We moved around like about every couple of years, and uh, gaming was the main way that I got in touch with people in new places. I'd find the gaming clubs or find other gamers and start clubs, and so gaming like got me through my teen years. I'm Brendan Taylor of Galileo Games, and I'm the Gamerati. Gamerati.com. It's good to be a gamer. Vapor Network is the bomb, the cutting edge of geekdom. Comics, advice, D&D, movies, video games, RPGs, finding it's easy just to stay calm vorpalnetwork.com This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by Gamerati.com. It's good to be a gamer. And listeners like you, thanks for using The Tome's Amazon Store. Hi, I'm James Wyatt, one of the lead designers for 4th edition and author of Eberron Trilogy, The Draconic Prophecies, and you're listening to The Tome Show. Welcome to The Tome, a D&D news, reviews, and interview show, and I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner. And I'm Samuel Dillon. In this episode, we're going to explore an abandoned fortress, meet some ancient paladins gone bad, and unleash the power of a deck of cards in this, the 188th episode of The Tome Show. And joining us today are two avid D&D players. We have Stuart, also known as Lestu, over on Twitter. Welcome to the show, sir. Hello! And we also have Michael, the online DM, coming back for our second slash third or fourth time. <laughs> <laughs> You were on, what, two episodes of Dice Monkey? Uh, yeah, that's right. Okay, so this would kind of be Sort of my fourth time on the feed. Your fourth time on the feed, absolutely. Well, thank you for joining us, guys. Uh, we have just a little bit of news to discuss uh, before we get into our shtick for the day. Mo- and most of the news is not n- new, new news for anybody who, who keeps up on things, but I don't know, um, in terms of the entire podcast listening audience who might be knowing what and, li- and paying attention to what and what have you. So we're going to cover some, uh, some qu- things quickly that we may have uh, otherwise already talked about. One of those things being DDXP. Uh, it is coming up soon, depending on when this episode comes out. Maybe it's just happened. Uh, we're going to have as much coverage as we can. I've kind of been uh, working with the people over at DDXP and Wizards of the Coast and, and some people that we know that are going um, to try to work out coverage and, and a, a, an early thanks to the guys over at Baldman Games who run DDXP and Tracy Barnett, who's uh, uh, going to be joining us as, as one of the newest members of the Tome Show family in an upcoming uh, something for you to sample, I guess. I, my, my brain. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I wanted to use some, some verbiage in there and it just didn't happen. But anyway, he's going to, he's going to be joining us with a new, with a new show here um, in the near future. So, uh, he also may be helping us out with some DDXB coverage because none of the normal, none of the rest of the Tome Show family is going to be there. Uh, and then the other thing to discuss is, I, I don't know if you've heard, but apparently there's a new D&D coming out. Shocking. I, I know. I know. Uh, 
I hope no one's driving while they're listening to this. They might accidentally <laughs> drive off the road. <laughs> oh, my gosh. By the time you're hearing this, you, this is probably old news. But um, we've, we discussed it in, at length in a recent Raw episode. I know some people don't like the unedited nature of Raw episodes. Um, so we're going to have regular coverage here. And I don't know how often we'll do Raw episodes. That was sort of a, a unique situation for a, a breaking news sort of thing and trying to get it out as quickly as possible. Uh, but we want to have... Uh, a, a short little formal conversation about the what what we learn and when we learn it here, and so we're going to have a D and D next um, seg- segment in the news section of Tome episodes from from here until the release of the edition. Uh, but what we know so far is that it's supposed to be very modular. Um, it's supposed to be a game that encompasses players of all editions. Whether you're playing first edition, second, third, or fourth, you should all be able to sit together at the same table and play D&D together is sort of the idea. Um, and none of us has any idea how that's going to happen yet. <laughs> Seems starting to get some hints. Yeah, starting to get a few hints here and there. Um, so it, it's, the, it's the addition to end the edition wars is how I sort of understand it. That's a very noble goal. I like to see that. Yeah, I think that's an actually pretty an awesome idea um, to not have to have, um, you know, I only play third edition or I only play fourth edition or whatever. It'd be it'd be nice to be able to have all your friends sit at the table. It will, and they also ha- have learned some things from uh, some other companies, and they're going to start doing some open play- open play testing, and you can go sign up for that right now over at wizards dot com. Um, so they'll be getting lots of feedback from the community and, and hopefully that means a lot of community um, buy-in to the new edition uh, so people can go participate and make the game their own help shape it Yay. yeah I'm, I'm real excited about that has everybody here signed up definitely oh yeah of course okay on both my email addresses <laughs> very good <laughs> uh, and then we also have some new upcoming episodes Shortly, um, we have the the next book club, which is Everything I Need to Know I Learned from D&D by Shelley Mazanoble. And we've just recently arranged for Shelley to uh, join us on that recording. Yay! Cool. So that'll be oh, that's cool. coming shortly. And then uh, we have a, a D&D, rec- you know, in 2011 and look ahead to 2012 sort of episode, we're going to look back in, at the, the last year in D&D and we're going to look ahead to what we expect to see in the next year in D&D um, in an episode we're going to record here at the end of the month, assuming all the DDXP coverage doesn't, you know, break the internet. So that's kind of what yeah. we got coming up. Awesome. Great. I'm looking forward to it. No other news? I think that's, uh, I think that's the news. That's pretty big news. <laughs> <laughs> Today, we're talking about Madness at Gardmore Abbey, a 4th edition Dungeons & Dragons super adventure that is not new. It was released in September, which is now several months ago, and at, when it was released, we had it as the pick of an episode, but we never really spent a whole episode focusing on it. So, you know, it's obviously not a new product, but we have read it and gotten feedback about it from Stu and Michael to name two people, Mm -hmm. and we decided to revisit it, talk about what makes it stand out from the previous Super Adventures released for 4th edition, and what makes it something that's a little special and that you might want to delve into, even if if you're not interested in running a pre-published module. However, note that this show will contain spoilers, so if you're going to play this as a player, it might sort of lower your fun level if you know too much. Because uh, there's a lot of stuff going on in here. 
right, so, so they have been warned. Yeah, so you've been warned. So so turn it off right now. If you're if you're a player in my game, turn it off. <laughs> All right. So Gardmore Abbey. Um, it's a unique product. Um, in fact, Sam, you referred to it as a super adventure, but I think at Gen Con they were calling it something different, and I forget what that was. Yeah. Um, they had a, a unique name for it that wasn't – it was kind of super adventure but not quite super adventure because it comes in a box set. Mm. Um, yeah. With props and, and all kinds of stuff. And so um, – but, I, but I, I mean what, what, I think, what, what else do you compare the, it to? In the, t- in the text, it, uh, it actually refers to itself as a super adventure oh, right on. at, well, at some point in the text. Then they've stuck themselves in that pigeon, pigeonhole and yeah. we'll take it. <laughs> there you go. Um, well, I think it's an apt name. I mean it, it is not just a simple – straight through one or two session adventure. I mean, Madis Gardmore Abbey is much more involved, uh, much more well-developed as a setting and char- with characters um, that uh, a party can really have, I'd say, I don't know, we haven't played all the way through it yet with my group, but I could see this lasting, I don't know, six or seven sessions perhaps, um, spanning a couple of levels of play. So it's, it's, a, it's definitely very meaty for an adventure. I think Super Adventure suits it pretty well. And it, it also depends on what direction is taken, right? There's lots of there's lots of different ways it could go and, and different seeds that are sown in this sort of by the text that you can use later on in your campaign. Definitely. I, I would say I would say six or seven sessions is probably about the minimum that you could do. It's mm-hmm. probably at least, you know, your your mileage may vary of course, but for me it's probably gonna be more like ten or twelve. Because there's a lot, a lot of stuff in there. Um, one of the things that I really like about it is that it fits nicely into the stuff that's already been um, published. Very specifically, I'm thinking of um, Keep on the Shadowfell. It sort of ha- has its home base in Winterhaven, and of course, if you know Keep on the Shadowfell, that has its home base in Winterhaven as well. So, say if you've run it or you've had players who've run it, they pretty much already know a lot of the main NPCs. Um, and so that makes it a lot easier to go, who was that guy's name and what did he do? And it's already been written down once and established once. Mm-hmm. Now, now there's, that, that there's, said, somebody who doesn't run in, in the core setting, how easy would it be for me to integrate this adventure into my... So there's there's also a, a piece from... There's a connection to Reavers of Harkenwold, and there's a connection to the City of Falkrest, which is in the back of the Dungeon Master's Guide. But it gives every bit of information that you need. You don't have to have run any previous item. It gives you everything you need to do that. It also gives you the reference, you know, you you may know these people from whatever. But yeah, I, I think that if you, you were just going to drop it into your own campaign that you were not setting in the Nentir Vale, um, you might want to change the names of, you know, change the name of Winterhaven, change the names of the NPCs mm-hmm. to match whatever's in your universe. But as long as it's the kind of universe where you could have some ruined old building that had been sacked by orcs a century and a half ago and now strange things have moved in and various parties are interested in it um that sounds like pretty easy to drop in stuff uh, in, in, in my opinion let's uh take a step back real quick and talk about jeff mentioned that it's actually like a box set so let's talk about what you get when you buy this product sure so um, the main part of the adventure itself is the, the books, and it is actually four separate books. Uh, they're all 32-page books, uh, just paperback. You know, they're not hardbound or anything like that. Uh, the, the first one lays out, here's the abbey and, and the environment around it, and some maps of the different places you might see, um, kind of a capsule description of all the locations, and then some information about the deck of many things. 
the second book is the NPCs that you'll meet and the various quests, um, a party of rival adventurers, that type of stuff. And then the third and fourth books are all the combat encounters and a couple of skill challenge type encounters as well with maps and monster stat blocks. So that's piece one. There's piece one. Piece two is um, several uh, card stock. It actually comes with a, a, a sheet full of tokens that are double-sided um, that have uh, all, the, all the monsters you would need as well as some um, uh, tokens that are specifically uh, designed to go along with um, the company cards, the deck cards. Um, it also comes with a second sheet of uh, dungeon tiles um, that are specific to it. Yeah, and you said cardstock, but they're actually the the thick cardboard, um, you know, that you're, yeah. that you're used to from those kinds of tokens and dungeon tiles and things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just want to make sure people are clear um, that they didn't cheap out on the on the tokens. Nope, no, they didn't cheap out on the tokens. Yeah. yeah, there's a there's really only two two places they cheaped out, which is what my that I this is probably the only two things I don't like about this product. The first one is the box. It comes in the same box like the the Shadowfell box came in. It's just a flimsy piece of junk box that opens only at the top. It's really worthless. Uh, and yep. then those boxes the, continue to drive me crazy. Yeah, they're they're really yeah. bad. Um, but the 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 other thing where they cheaped out and as far as I'm concerned, is there's the four booklets, and the first booklet has a really nice, thick cardstock cover. Yeah. Like, a, like it's by its, it's a, a cover of a book. And uh, the rest of the other three have the thin hmm. cover that's the same thickness like as a regular page. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't even notice that until you just said that. Yep. Yeah. I noticed that too and was also frustrated. <laughs> and it's, um, I, I don't know if it's about page count because when you make the, the cover of the thing the same thickness as a page, you can have stuff on the inside page of that. Whereas if you notice the first book doesn't have anything on the inside of the page because it's actually a cover page cardboard, it's not it's not a page that was printed. So I, I don't know, but it just, it bugs me out. I'm sort be. of OCD about that kind of thing and it, it bugs me, but it's not a deal breaker by any means. It doesn't ruin the thing, but yeah. Mm -hmm. And then the last thing that it comes with is the, um, well, two last things. It actually comes with a deck of cards and it's the deck of many things from editions of yore. And, um, as well as, uh, Two treasure cards? Is it two treasure cards? Yes, yes two treasure cards. Um, it, and it's really awesome to see, you know, to have an actual deck that's, you know, you can shuffle. And it's not, you know, 52 cards or whatever, but it's an actual physical prop. That's mm -hmm. pretty awesome. Yeah, I know in previous editions, I always made my own um, deck of many things. I actually took a deck of 52 cards and just threw away all the ones that weren't usable as a deck of many things. And had a deck of many things just in my in my gaming kit, just in case you know on a on a lark, I decided to to end up killing three hours of game time by putting a deck of many things in front of them and saying, "All right, go. What do you do?" <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's nice to have it. It's twenty two cards. They all have you know full full illustrations on them. I did hear some people complain that on the illustration side, you know, the, the front of the card, it does have a little uh, line at the bottom with artist credit and you know trademark twenty eleven, which is the coast that some people thought distracted a little bit from the magic of it but you know i'm fine with it being there doesn't bother me yeah yeah me either yeah uh the other thing to note about the deck is that it's not the same deck that was printed in a recent one of the recent magazine articles uh and i can't find this the actual i can't remember which 
which number it was, but there, there was a deck of many things article, uh-huh. um, last year in one, in one of the dragon magazines. And it talked about different things. And that's a different deck than this one, uh, yes. in terms of how things work in this, in this particular module, much like Orcus, we now have multiple versions of the deck of many things. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It looks like that was from, uh, dragon number 386 from April of 2010. There you go. So yeah. No, that said, if you're going to use that deck of many things, the, this deck of many things prop would still work, wouldn't it? I mean, it's still the same cards. They just, they just function different, different. Mechanics. Right. Yeah. That that's what I meant. That it, it's it has um, this this particular product goes a long way to describe several different effects for all the cards and how you use them. It, it's very explicit about uh, everything that it can do, and it has different results depending on different situations. It's, it's very um, elegant, actually, the way that they did it. Not that the article in Dragon wasn't, because I, ha- I, don't, I don't remember it, because it's been a long time since I read it, but I just remember when I read Gardmore thinking they did a really nice job in making this deck of cards relevant to the actual campaign that you're running. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, you, you can't separate the two. You have to have, I mean, the, the whole spoiler thing, the whole reason Gardmore Abbey has a big madness in front of it is because of this deck of cards, this deck mm-hmm. of many things. Um, and it's infused in every every building, every setting, every creature that's in there has some sort of attachment to it. Um, and the adventure does a really good job of helping the DM sort of decide where those things go and how those things happen. And that's pretty cool, too. Okay, so as a as a as somebody who's encountered the deck of many things in, in several previous editions uh, and used them, use, use the deck a lot, the old deck was always a deck, right? It, it couldn't be split up. It could, you, you, know, you couldn't just have one card, and once you, you drew cards, you couldn't draw any more cards. This version clearly, mechanically, has to work very differently in the context of well, this adventure. Is that going to break my enjoyment, my nostalgia factor of, of this concept? Well, look... Let me let me correct you in that. So in this, if you don't have a complete deck, the individual cards have certain functions. As soon as you have a complete deck, it works like the deck many things from the days of yore, where you draw one and once you've used it, it disappears. Okay. Just like just like before. So so yes and no. <laughs> Round. <laughs> I was gonna. I want to pause here and ask um, for 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 Sam uh, and for Stu. Have you guys actually already run the adventure or part of it? No, I I'm in the process of running. Oh, okay, sorry. God, I, I, I'll just be curious because I think it'll because uh, I'm I'm only a little bit ways into it too, and I'll admit I haven't used the deck very much yet. I, I'm interested to hear how other other DMs have used it in their game. Um, so I, I sort of look at the adventure as a so in the adventure. The deck gets scattered amongst the the abbey, right? And this, like I said, this is why it's sort of maddening. Um, and so your the PC's job, in one form or another, is to collect it. And whether or not they're going to collect it to do evil or you know destroy it or whatever is up to your is up to your players. Um, once you sort of uh, once you get one, things start happening to them. And, and it's sort of DM caveat and how that's going to, you know, what, what's going to happen, which card is going to be played, whatnot. But once you get one, 
um, things really start changing, the, especially in combat. Um, so once one card is drawn, uh, a little uh, light starts flickering in a certain space, and if a character touches that certain space, the, um, something happens to it. So uh, it really changes the game mechanically, or changes the, the, the encounters mechanically. Uh, but then once you start getting, uh, once, one, once more than one card is in an encounter, whether or not the PCs have it or the monsters have it, um, other things start happening. And, and the deck starts getting sort of its um, essence or it starts having a mind of its own and starts doing things on its own. So it's a really, I'm sort of excited to start playing with more than just one or two cards to see how that works. I've only played with, uh, so far, so far my PCs have only encountered one card, but soon that'll change. Right on. So, but, but it sounds like that's a really dynamic, interesting sort of way to structure an environment and an adventure that is very, very non-traditional. Yeah, it is. And it was kind of interesting with the deck. Um, so for my game, I, I run, as you might guess from you know, the online DM game uh, name, I do run my games online for the most part. And so I can't have my, my players draw a card from the deck physically. Um, and what's interesting is that's fine in this particular adventure because the 22 cards of the deck will all be scattered in various locations or on various characters right from the beginning of the adventure. And so I was able to draw them all and say, okay, which card do the, do the, does the party have to start with? Okay, that's this one. Which card does this particular bad guy have? That's this one. Which card is hidden in this particular location? That's this other one. And I just made a list of where they all are. Um, so there really isn't a time that anybody's really drawing from the deck, with the exception of encounters where there's lots of cards going on, like Stu was talking about. Once you have a, you know, three or four cards in your possession, or if the, the enemy has several cards, there will be some drawing involved then. Um, or, at the very end, once you've reassembled the deck, then you can draw from it. Um, although I believe it is just a one-shot deal if you draw from the deck as an artifact at the end, correct? Yes, it disappears yeah. on you. Yeah, you get, like you get one shot, and, and depending on how, how pleased the deck is with you, it affects how many cards you get to draw. You know, draw three and keep the best, or draw two and keep the worst, or whatever. Now, I know good DMs could add more levels of, of dynamic sort of uh, play and, and story with this uh, adventure, uh, but but as written, is it largely the players that are able to to affect things? You know, as as they collect things and in whatever order they do it, it changes things, right? But but at the same time, are there other factions out there also collecting that the DM is guided on how that happens and what have you? This is one of my favorite parts of of the adventure. Actually, is that there's mine too, Samuel. Yeah, there's there's these different factions that so there there's um, there are these different main sort of NPC figures in the in the game or in the adventure that that have a card already at least one card there's some people that have more than one card no one is really close to having the whole deck but then there's also there's different factions that um could hire the players or you know be the player's patron ask them to do these different quests and one thing that the adventure does really well is it it, it puts right into it this sort of unknown person who is a patron probably of the players but may or may not have nefarious ideas and they call that person the secret collector and the secret collector might be one of the patrons that's hiring the players that is 
you know, for all intents and purposes, a benign person, but they have some reason why they want to collect the deck because maybe they know it's powerful and they want to destroy it, or maybe they know it's powerful and they want to get it so they can gain power and wealth. Or, you know, there's these different reasons, but there are, you know, three or four different NPCs that could be the secret collector. And the DM pretty much determines that in the beginning when they start the campaign with the players, they determine it before the campaign has even begun. Um, and then the 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 adventure gives lots of advice on how to role play all these different NPCs that have these different motivations and want to hire the players to do these different jobs. And it's very non-linear in terms of what happens because if the players, you know, if they if they choose to do quest A, for instance, they may find out some information that might cause them to not accept quest B from this other person over here. Um, and the, the adventure does a really good job of having all these different factions fighting each other. And there's the other the other part that's really interesting is they who there's a patron who has already hired whoever the secret collector is, which they don't know who it is at first. Whoever that person is, they've already hired another group of adventurers to also be retrieving the deck. So you end up meeting those people what between one and four times throughout the adventure, and they they might respond differently or, you know, it's, it's a very well done the way that they did it. So I'll, I'll shut up and let some other people talk now. <laughs> that's okay. part of, that's probably my most favorite part of this adventure is that I, I sort of look at it like it, um, it's a, it's an adventure for not beginning DMs and not advanced DMs, intermediate DMs where they're sort of starting to learn how to do, um, like more sandboxy type of storytelling, um, not so much railroading storytelling, but they haven't quite, you know, decided to let loose of the whole, the whole shebang and just let, you know, the players run rampant. So it really provides a lot of structure, which I think is really, it's something that's really needed, you know, um, because railroad pre-adventures don't really, or pre-published adventures don't, are kind of boring and open blah is you know is really intimidating so um this this really provides a lot of like if your players go here do this and if your players go there that's sort of this is another way to go so yeah i think that's a great great point Stu. i totally agree that this is um for DMs who have some experience, they've run some maybe fairly linear adventures and are ready for something a bit more advanced. Like, I think with the books that came out starting in late 2010 with the Essentials line, you had The Adventure in the Red Box, which I haven't actually run. I don't know too much about it, but I do understand that it sort of leads into Reavers of Harkenwald, which I have run and I think is great. Mm -hmm. And Reavers is not purely linear. There is some, some branching the players can do, but it has uh, it sort of opens to a few different paths early and then collapses to a path in the middle, then opens up a bit and then collapses to a path at the end. So it's still fairly straightforward. And if you were to run the following adventure that comes from the Monster Vault, uh, which I've also run, uh, that's the... Um, the Carrot of the Winter King. That one is a pretty traditional dungeon crawl, meaning that it's fairly open-ended, players can go where they want first, but still, is confined in a single location that's fairly small. I think Madness of Gardenmore Abbey is, if you've mastered running those adventures, here's something new, and you can go, your party could go in, I mean, just such a huge number of different directions, making allies or, or enemies of different NPCs, uh, totally changing the course of the adventure for them. 
uh, and, and perhaps even ignoring certain parts of the Abbey entirely. They might never meet certain monsters or NPCs, and that's fine. You can still have a really fulfilling adventure. So it's very open-ended. Uh, it does, however, demand more of the DM. I will say that mm -hmm. I personally read through everything twice before I started running it, <laughs> and uh, with the exception of each of the combat encounters. I didn't go through all the details of all of them first, mm. but, but all the story stuff and the background and who the NPCs are and what their motivations are and, and how if the players do this, then that happens. Um, you know, it does take time to prepare it, but if you can do that, it's just so much more rewarding, I think, for the DM and for the party because of the freedom involved. So, mm -hmm. so with being in four different books and with all that freedom... Um, to be able to go here, there, and wherever, which means the information you're looking for in any given book could be you know, in a dozen different places. Uh, when you actually sit down and run the game, when you run this adventure, how quickly are you able to find what you want and when you want it? Um, I'll say that is a bit of a pain, I'll admit. Um, so the encounters are all in books three and four. And if you're in a particular combat encounter, it's not that hard to find the monster stats, the tactics, the, uh, the map. Um, so that's nice, but oftentimes if you're in interacting with an NPC who could be a patron or a rival or something like that, the information about their motivations is going to be in book one or book two. So you're flipping back and forth between books. And for me, because I do like using the computer to run things, I actually took the time to scan all four books into one gigantic PDF. Mm. Um, and that's a little bit easier for me because I know roughly this is about a quarter of the way through the PDF. So I'll just go to you know page 32 or something like that and, and flip up and down until I find what I need. Um, I have not gotten fancy enough to put bookmarks in my PDF or anything like that. But, um, but doing it with the paper books, um, you'll find yourselves oftentimes spread out with you know, two or three books open to different pages in front of you if you want to have both a combat going and remembering what's going on with the NPCs at the same time. Okay. So, uh, so for me, though, I, I have not made a judgment yet. I, I sort of have a love-hate relationship with what you just described because I don't know if I would be happier if it was in a single book or if I will be happier running it where I can have the encounter, the two-page encounter layout in front of me, and then if they, if the party wants to talk to someone, I can just grab the other book and open it to that NPC and look up their motivations real quick, or look up the companion stats for a couple of companion characters that you might have with you based on a couple of the quests that you could do. Mm -hmm. um, and then the fact that it's in separate books would actually be helpful, because then I don't have to lose the page where the encounter's on. I can just open up the other book, and they're small enough to, they're not, they're not unwieldy. But right. on the other hand, I like things in a single book. So for me, <laughs> aesthetically, it would have been better to be in one single book. But And if you were in a single book, you're flipping back and forth anyway. So I don't know which one is better. Uh, I, For me, it's uh, also the love-hate relationship. I, it's sort of like being in college, you know, and having to uh, have all of your, your history books out so you can write the one essay, right? Um, <laughs> so it's... Uh, the one problem this is this is my sort of one one issue with the adventure is that I wanted one book that says just about the deck. I found myself having to flip back and forth mm. between books one and two to sort of get a really clear picture about how the deck of many things works, what its intentions are, you know where it comes from, you know who knows about it, who doesn't know about it, and then flipping back and forth between those pages i I really feel like that was the sort of the biggest failing of the event of the adventure um was that it's really difficult for to be at the table and say, "This is how the deck works. Here's the book. I can read it right now 
Um, you really sort of have to assimilate that information, reprocess it, and spit it back out. And that's probably the hardest part of the adventure, because the encounters are all balanced, and, and you know, since Monster Manual 3, they're all balanced and they're all ready to go. Um, you don't really have to do anything to them, uh, unless you want to, of course. But the biggest thing is that is how the deck works and how it works fairly because you don't that when it's a mechanics thing you can't it's harder to come back and say well okay it worked that one time but this time it needs to work differently and then you run the risk of having it work differently next time. So, mm-hmm. so speaking of of balance and all that, uh, I don't know if we ever covered this at the beginning. What level do I need to be to run this? I believe it's for six to eight. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, six, six eight. So that six, might be that, eight, might, that might be useful to people as they're listening in, whether or not it's going to be useful to their uh, campaign. Yeah, right. Like I said, be- it is set up that you can follow the the essentials adventure trade here. So mm-hmm. Red Box, then DM Kit, then um, Monster Vault, then Madness Gardmore Abbey. That all being said, my players are first and second level, oh, yeah? <laughs> and they are having a blast. So. Uh, um, yeah, they're having a, they're having just a blast. So uh, we're, I, I've, I've obviously have scaled down the monsters a little bit, but not too much. Gotcha. Yeah, my party is um, they are seventh. I think they were at the very end of sixth level coming into it. Uh, they moved to seventh level after the first session, but I only have three players, so I'm having to do some scaling mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, it's it goes back to the um, the idea that they're finally. Like I said, I think this is probably one of their best adventures, um, and it's really sad that they're probably not going to do these again. (laughs) Yeah. I I remember thinking when I read it that this would be the perfect sort of... I know that the, the when you read the adventure, it talks about how it, they'll probably gain a couple of levels, and you know you you'll you know maybe start at six and end at eight or nine and whatever. But you know it's big enough that I would probably spend the entire second half of the heroic tier on this, where I, I would start them maybe at five and go all the way to ten, mm-hmm. because there's certain areas where, for example, there's a a beholder that's trapped in a pocket dimension in in one of the areas, and they can here's a spoiler, uh, they can bargain with this Beholder because the Beholder actually has one of the cards in its possession. And since the players want the card, maybe by the time they meet that, they'll probably have heard about the deck and have a quest to get some of those cards. So when they meet that Beholder, the Beholder just wants to escape. It's been trapped in this prison for a long time, and they can actually bargain with it and, and get the card for leading that Beholder out. But what the book then says is, and that Beholder will go away for a while, but probably it's going to make some sort of nest or lair under, you know, under Winterhaven or under Gardmore Abbey or somewhere in the Nintir Vale, and then those players should meet that creature again later. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, you know, thinking about levels and so on, the books three and four have a total of 33 encounters, a couple of her skill challenge, most are combats, mm-hmm. and, and there's also a lot of quests in here, too, and there's a few more combat encounters in books one and two, like, depending on who the secret collector is, here's a fight you might have with them, that kind of thing. Right. So, call it really, like, 35, 36 different encounters, um, and if you figure, typically, in fourth edition, it's ten encounters, including mm-hmm. quests, basically, would give you a level, that's three and a half just from those, you added the quest. I mean, you really could do four levels in the Abbey without adding anything. I mean, there's enough XP there for, for four full levels of play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, so 
It sounds like there's, I mean, there seems to be a lot more adventure in this box than what it looks like when you've dumped it all out on in the table in front of you. Mm-hmm. Um, Very much so. Now, and it comes with dungeon tiles and tokens and maps. And so the, I have to ask the, the Mike Shea official question uh, th- that he would be interested in hearing. <laughs> the answer is yes. Can you run it with the maps provided and nothing else? You have to have the dungeon tile master set. So with, this, right, with yeah. this and the dungeon tile master set, you, yes. can, ru- you can run this entire adventure. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'll tell you, if, if you're going to do it like me, and he was writing it online, um, I am happy that uh, Wizard of the Coast <laughs> did finally release the JPEGs for all the maps from it on their mm-hmm. on their website for, for DDI subscribers. So I, I delayed as long as possible to start running the adventure because I knew that people were asking for that. It's like, come on, don't make me redraw these maps, please. And then they finally all came out in a big download. So if you're using online tools for it, they did make all of their maps available uh, for DDI subscribers. Very good. So, so Jeff, to, to clarify, the answer to that is no, not out of the box. However, if you have the Monster Vault and the Dungeon Tile Master set, the dungeon, actual dungeon, Dungeon Tile Master set, you're fine. Okay. So you, it's, not, it's not an entire adventure in a box, but if you have the essential stuff, then they give you all the extra stuff you need to have an adventure in a box. Yeah. 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 And I appreciate that they've, they've built on that line. I mean, this is not... To be clear, this is not an essentials product. That was only ten products. This is not one of them. But it does definitely continue the essentials line, and uh, and I like that. You know, I think that if you had a friend who wants to get into DMing and fourth edition, I think that you can give them this sequence of adventures. And I have not played through the original sequence of H one to H three, P one to P three, E one to E three, but I did play through Keep on the Shadow Fell, and I know a lot of people have complained about those. Uh, it does seem like these are superior adventures so far, and um, and really well done, and they're 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 set up to be easy to access for, for Essentials DMs. I'm almost half tempted to say that you could take all the, the Essentials stuff that's in the core setting and the original you know, H1 through E3 series and, and weave them together to do a whole uh, 1 to 30 campaign and not have to do any prep yourself. You probably could. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of course, you, you the, the new Essentials stuff only gets you through like Heroic Tier, though, so... Right, that's true. Well, although they do yeah, have some but, new Paragon Adventures coming out, right? Wasn't there the 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 giant adventures that Chris Perkins is redoing from older editions? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Those are Paragon, I believe. Yeah, so maybe you can throw those in. Very cool. I just wanted to say, you know, we can do the uh, do the what did you like the best and and why? But a, a very sort of brief truncated what did you like the best? Only because if if I start answering, I'll just talk for a half hour. <laughs> well, and you've already said the thing you like the best. Yeah. <laughs> so. But I have another, so go ahead. Okay. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll jump in then. So this is Michael. Um, I think I, I do like the the sandbox with guardrails that you get here. You know, it's not an adventure on rails, not linear, but um, but it's not so open ended that I think a fairly new DM would be in danger of getting things completely screwed up. Um, if, if your players do something unexpected, if you're at all savvy as a DM, have a little bit of experience, you can probably get back to something that you have material prepared for. You know, they go in an unexpected direction, that's okay. There's there's a map for that. There's, hey, here's who lives in that area if your players decide to go somewhere weird. Um, so I really think, like, for me, I'm still fairly new. I mean, I've only been really playing D&D for about two years, and I've done a little bit of running my adventures I've written myself, but I mostly run published stuff, which is much more on Rails. And even the stuff I wrote myself was pretty rail, railroady. This, I think, is a nice step. It's, it, it is more sandboxy. 
Um, but without being so open-ended that a DM is going to get lost. I think that it hits that balance very well. So maybe it's a good teaching tool. It's a good tool for somebody who's been, who, who wants to sort of uh, flex their DMing muscles a little bit more and try something a little bit more advanced to, to do this with some assistance to, to see if it's something they could do on their own later. Yep, very much so. Yeah, that's, like I said, it was a, a, a good intermediate DM adventure. Mm-hmm. Um, you, that, and that's, like I said, that's the thing I like about it the most, is that it's um, not so railroady to the point where it's, you have to kill that kobold in order to move ahead, but it's, um, and it's not so open-ended to where they can go, you know, fight the moon or whatever. They, can, well, they sort of have to have the buy-in. And a lot of those really, really open-ended uh, adventures that you see from whoever makes them, many publishers have tried them, um, and all of, a lot of those usually end up just feeling a little bit more like a setting book, you know? It's not so much an adventure as it, as it is just, you know, here's a setting with interesting things going on and go. Well, I mean, compare it to the Shadowfell, Blue Run Beyond, right? I mean, that is a setting book. It was not an adventure, even though there were encounters for it. Um, it was largely a setting, and here's different factions and NPCs. Uh, that's that's more advanced for a DM. Which, and I, I know that it was intended to be. It was not intended to be an adventure for somebody to run. It was intended to be um, material to give you inspiration for adventures that you could run. So I would say that from hand, hand-holding of a DM, you start with the... The, the standard adventures, you know, Reavers of Harkenwald, for instance, that's level one, this is level two, and then something like a full, full-on full setting book like the Shadowfell, Gloom, Rotten Beyond might be level three. Once you, you know how to build an adventure, you just need hooks and ideas and NPCs and maybe some drop-in encounters. Mm-hmm. So it's a yeah. spectrum to me. Mm-hmm. So my, my other favorite thing that I was going to mention was that uh, – I really, really, really respect the way that they wrote the NPCs and their motivations um, and told us about all those people that the players could meet and made them very real um, in terms of it's not just, oh, this is your big bad evil guy and he's evil and that's why in the end you're going to have to kill him. Like the, There's really no one like that. Um, yeah. But, but the, th- the thing that about that that is so great is they did that and at the same time they largely moved away from the skill challenge. And instead, what they did was give the DM advice on, you know, here's how to play this person, here's their motivation, here's how they're going to react to the PCs, and here's how they'll react if the PC fails this quest that they gave them, or if the PC responds by trying to intimidate them or or ignore them or not respect them or whatever, here's how they'll respond. And on the other hand, if this person in your adventure happens to be the secret collector, here's how they'll actually respond. And it's still true to their main motivation and their main sort of personality, but it's different enough that the DM gets an idea of how to put it across to their players that this person is actually acting this way versus just giving me some stats and saying, okay, well, this is, you know, the paladin Oakley or whatever, and he's this paladin of Bahamut, and there you go. That Everybody obviously should know how to run an NPC that's a paladin of Bahamut, right? Well, no, that's wrong. So this book doesn't do that. It actually tells you exactly how to run those people. Yeah, I think that's, that's a, an excellent point, and uh, I love that. I think there is, even though there aren't so many skill challenges in here, there's so much more role-playing potential. And you know, an example of that is not just the big evil ones. I, I recently ran um, an encounter, this is spoilers again here, encounter number 21, the temple, uh, in which the PCs come into this temple and there are some harpies and some silent angels of valor that are 
twisted and are, are you know attacking the PCs as invaders. What I love is there's two harpies and. After their stat blocks are presented, you know, the harpies have standard harpy powers, they have an alluring song, and they have a deadly screech. On the second page, it gives you story and role-playing notes where it tells you these two harpies, they have names, and they have distinct personalities. And this first harpy, her alluring song is a twisted distortion of hymns to Bahamut, and her deadly screech is a sudden burst of invective condemning the targets. The other one is totally different personality. She seems confused and distracted, uh, and her, her deadly screech is a, a wordless wail of torment, and her alluring song is childless babble that invites people to draw near to give her comfort. Hmm. That's really cool. I think that as a DM, I know that I often struggle to really role-play my monsters and give them character. Um, you know, they say, okay, this one starts singing its alluring song, and it hits your will, great, you come closer. Uh, in this case, you can say, you know, she does this and describe what it sounds like, and if it hits you, here's how it feels inside. You know, that's, that's really cool. It's re- it's really amazing to me how at, now now that we know we're at the end of fourth edition they've they've gotten really good at putting so much story into the mechanics. Yeah, you know? I mean they've gotten yeah. really good at it. To the, and, and it's like you know if they'd have been that good at it at the beginning, um, the whole edition war never would have happened, right? I mean that's what a lot of people kind of complained about <laughs> was yeah. having a hard time feel, feeling the story in, in the whole thing. So now Sam, you mentioned that there's no you know singular you know this is the big bad evil guy you've got to go de- to defeat sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, and now none of you have gotten to this point in, in running it, but. When you get to the end of the of the whole adventure, without a one big bad evil guy, is there something that's going to help create that big sort of climactic moment that that finishes the the adventure that a lot of people find very satisfying? Yeah. So the, when I said that, I it do, it doesn't mean that there is not a main villain that the PCs have to end up defeating because there is. It's just that um, because of the way that they've done the secret collector. They don't present it that this person is always the secret collector, and therefore, in the end, uh, this is the person they're going to have to defeat. So they have to present a range of people that will be sort of the foils to the players, and some of them are are truly evil, um, but some of them are not. Like like the the uh, the adventuring group that someone else has hired to go find the deck, they're not. Um, they're not evil. There's only one of them that is actually evil. The rest of them are unaligned. And it actually tells about their personalities and what their motivations are. And so if your players push the game in a way that makes them keep interacting with that group, it's possible that that group will end up turning and being allies to the players. It's also possible that they'll get really upset and they'll be the the really true enemy to the player. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, at the same time, it could be that the secret collector ends up being the big bad evil guy, and at the same time, there are a couple of big monsters in the abbey in different places that could end up being the main sort of person for that that sort of mini arc part of the. It, you know, so here's the thing about a sandbox, right? In this case, the adventure is player driven, so they they sort of decide which patron they want to work for, which quests they want to do based on different interactions. And that's what's going to determine who ends up being their main focus in that particular part of the adventure. Yeah. I mean, there are, there are like you're talking about the, the guys in the Abbey, I think it's five different sort of factions, each of which basically has a head. You know, there's a person, the creature in charge of the faction. Um, so it's sort of like five smaller big bad evil guys. And then the secret collector being the kind of, and the capstone thing, you know, the secret collector's motivation is to get the deck for whatever their motivations are, and, and I do like that every secret collector is given two possible motivations, one of which is mm-hmm. sort of noble, and the other which is more selfish. And uh, and if you play it all the way through, there probably will be a big showdown with the secret collector at the end, 
to the, the party probably has almost all the cards, and the secret collector has a few that they that they managed to get their hands on first, and then it's sort of a fight to to see who gets the deck together, and then it probably ends most likely with somebody making a draw from the deck. Uh, I would imagine that's kind of the the big finale of the adventure, um, unless the party decides to just hang on to the deck and use it as a tome implement, which which is also an option. Or the other option what, is they you? they wait they defeat the big bad evil guy they get the deck, and then they may decide they don't want to draw from it because they know it's very powerful, and they may True. decide to go on a quest to destroy it. Yep, good point. Right. And, and it, it, go ahead, Stu. And it all, the, the adventure also lays out, or the, the box set also lays out, like, what you do after that, right? So after you collect it all, you're like, this is an entirely too evil thing to exist. We need to destroy it. How do we destroy it? Mm-hmm. The adventure lays that out for you. Um, yeah. Which I, well, I also thought was really cool. Yeah, the idea that it gives on how you might, and I'm not going to say it because I really don't want to spoil that, so please don't say it, but the idea that it gives you on how you might have the players have to go destroy it is really great. Um, but yeah. it's also, it's not set up so that you have to use that. If you have some other wonderful idea that leads back to something else that happened in your campaign from before, you can use that as well. There's not a there's not a particular um a, a prescribed way that the deck has to be destroyed. There are there are suggestions or ideas, but there's not there's not something that is an actual you know factor in the deck or a, a characteristic of the deck that it has to be destroyed in a particular way. Right. You can you 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 can make up that and say that it is, and it gives you ideas for what you might have them do, but it's not it prescribed by the by the adventure. Right, I sort of look at that little chapter, that little section as the um, to be continued, you know, uh, because you could totally uh, have another campaign based around, you know, destroying the stupid deck of cards. Right. And then, and how it, uh, and it, like I said, it's also a wondrous item, so it also has, you know, its concordance, and it gets happy, it gets sad, and, and all of those things, too, so... Um, but only after it becomes a full deck. Mm-hmm. Each individual yeah. card doesn't have that. Yeah, I do like that they've... Uh, they, they do this with a lot of artifacts, but with the deck, they give the, the object itself a personality, you know, and, and desires. You know, it's a this powerful force for chaos in the world. And I think, um, you know, a good DM will find ways to, to role-play that as, as they start collecting more and more of the deck, and as they finally complete it, you know, to understand... The, the power of the deck and also its desires and what its goals are, which might be at odds with the party. Um, I think that's that can have a ton of fun potential for, for the party. Yeah. I really do like the uh, the completeness of it, you know, the, the tokens and the, um, the dungeon tiles, and I do like how it's in four different books. Um, I do wish that they had one book that was, or one sort of pamphlet or something that was just the deck of many things, nothing else. Because I, I sort of feel like it gets lost. Okay. Was there anything that stood out to either of you guys that was something that you really didn't like the way they did it? And you thought to yourself as you were reading it, oh, I, I won't do that in my game. I probably wouldn't go with that idea. For for me, it was, uh, and this is just a and d thing across the board, and I could be interpreting the rules wrong, but I, I don't like... Um, so it's assumed that the players know everything about the card as soon as they get it or after a night's nice rest or something like that. Um, I, I sort of don't like that because what I what I really like is the randomness of it, especially in some of the um, environmental cards 
Like, they have this card, the shadow appears on the ground. I don't know what that shadow is. It just, you know, see what happens, right? Um, so I, I sort of made that, I sort of tweaked one of the, um, one of the NPCs to be sort of, uh, to, to sort of have that Sean Connery diary from, uh, from Last Crusade, you know, that tells <laughs> everything about everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I, I sort of use that a little bit more to sort of have like the old wise and guard saying, I'm, I've never seen this thing, but I know it exists and I know what's out there, um, to sort of lead the players a little bit if they needed it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for, for me, I mean, there's not a lot that I, I don't like about it. I mean, I, I can say, on the one hand, you might not like it that you have to do a lot of prep. I mean, I, I don't think this is a sit down and run it out of the book, hey, guys, I got this adventure, let's sit down and play it today kind of thing. You know, you need to you need to really understand it in order to, to make it right, I think. Um, and, and because it is sort of sandboxy, you might not be able to prepare too far in advance either unless you prepare absolutely everything because your players could decide to go in a direction you weren't expecting and that definitely happened to me but that's not really a complaint that's just that's just sandboxing i mean what, what are you going to do that's that's how it goes um i would right. say one thing that felt a little weird but i'm still not totally sure how i should be running this is um you know more spoilers here but a pretty mild one there is an orc village inside the walls of uh the outer walls of gardmore abbey and mm-hmm. and that's probably what most people will, will be sent to the the, uh, on the quest for it at the beginning anyway is Lord Patrick of Winterhaven will probably ask them, hey, can you go handle this orc threat? And it's described as being a village um, built on the ruins of the old Gardmore village. They're not, the orcs aren't really living in the buildings anymore. They're sort of camped out. And there's a bunch of them, you know, one or two hundred orcs, I believe, not all of whom are fighters. And one of the things the party is described to be able to do is sort of go scouting through the village and on up. And, and honestly, I think that's something that I'm not a good enough DM yet to really understand how that would look. Because um, it, it kind of gives you the impression that they're trying to blend into the crowd, uh, a crowd of all orcs. And, and, and unless you have a whole party of half orcs, it's going to be tricky to do. <laughs> so yeah. I think I'm missing something there. So I didn't, I didn't actually read it that way. How I read it was when Padraig asks you, when Padraig asks the party to go find out about the orc threat. He actually just asks them to scout and get information about how many there are, where they're at, mm-hmm. you know, wh- who's their leader, you know, is there, you know, what how how strong are they basically? And so the way I read that when it talked about that whole thing was they're not supposed to try to blend in with the orc village. They're supposed to um you know, if they defeat the people at the guard house at, at the very front of the guards, they have time before that the reinforcements come because that that's the other good thing about the thing is it talks about different reinforcements when you defeat certain yeah. areas but um when they have time after they defeat that first group to sneak in and there's plenty of areas in the grounds of Gardmore Abbey in the whole thing behind the wall where they could sneak around and just gather information about, well, we know to the north there are several different huts, and we know that there, you know, there's an estimate, you know, of 20 orcs up there or something, and on this side there's two huge ogres, and, you know, I didn't see it as them trying to sort of blend in as much as sneak around. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you're I right, mean, it, do- it doesn't give a good idea of how to run that particular type of encounter. Yeah, I think it's, Encounter 2 is the one I, I personally am struggling with. It's, it's called Gardmore Village, and it says that uh, you know whenever once per day, whenever the adventurers enter the orc-infested streets of the ruined village, they have to go through this skill challenge. 
and they can either take a disguise route where they try to pass themselves art, pass themselves off as part of the occupying force, or more of an avoidance route where they'll try to you know slip past them. Mm-hmm. Um, and the avoidance part, I can understand. I, I can see how that could work. The disguise part, I think I just read that and I I didn't get it. I mean, I just is that. But you know, they give you some ideas in the adventure of how that could yeah. work. Uh, and I will say, for my own party, when I ran that, when they went to scout the village, they actually ended up going in through the Fey Grove, meeting the Eladrin there, and then sort of made some allies of the Eladrin. And the Eladrin had done some scouting already, so they were able to take the party to a part of the Fey Grove from which they could see some of the Orc village and show them what they knew. And I just kind of hand-waved the, the details so they didn't have to go through the village. They were able to just kind of get the information from the Eladrin, who'd already seen it from the Fey Grove before, and, and just because I wasn't really figured, sure how to do that. But that's a very, very minor issue. Yeah. My players decided to go through the Fae Grove, and then they saw a tower that they wanted to explore. They haven't explored the tower yet. Is that the Watchtower? That's the Watchtower, yeah. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. I think, so, in terms of that, um, that would be something where, and I think this is why they gave different options, because you might have a party that is really good at doing things like bluffing and disguising themselves, and you might have a party that cannot do that at all because they just don't have the skills. And it at least gives them a choice. That's true. But, yeah, but yeah, at, from, from a DM perspective, it is one of the things that's a little harder to sort of deal with. Yeah. Because then what happens if they're in the middle of town and their disguise fails, right? Do 200 orcs attack them? You know what I'm exactly. saying? Like, that, yeah, that's what I it's, mean. It's, it's I had a hard time with that. Yeah. yeah. But, um, but fortunately, you know, I just sort of avoided that issue entirely. Um, I guess, you know, it, it sounds like, Stu, you had the same experience with your party. They went into the Fey Grove as well. And that's a totally legitimate option. There's a crumbled wall there, so it's easy for them to get in. Uh, but I think when you read the adventure, it, as it describes the Fey Grove, it sort of assumes that the party is coming at it from the orc village. Like, for some reason, the, the adventure seems to assume they're either going to storm the front gates or take the secret stair up the back. And it doesn't really yeah. talk too much about when they come in straight through the Fade Grove, which surprised me because, yeah, your party and mine both concluded that was the best way in. I think that there's a little a little paragraph about um, about that, about entering through the Fade Grove, and there's, there's also a... Um, there's an encounter that goes along with it, Encounter 6, I think, which is the um, which is the spiders, right? Um, and it talks about how you know what to do there, and you know you have to get, traverse through the spiders or whatever. Um, that one didn't wasn't as successful as uh, you know some other encounters I've run, um, but the, it seemed to go okay. Uh, and then they they were like, well, we don't want to we don't want to go immediately into the fake world. We want to go up around. So we're gonna we're gonna try to get to the um get to the uh, the staircase on the back. So yeah, I mean it's a little it, like I said, it definitely needs a DM who's gonna be uh, uh, thinking on their feet. Yeah. Um, because a DM who who can't who doesn't have that uh, skill of constantly thinking on their feet, constantly being invited, or constantly being able to tell a story with just a few minutes of preparation isn't going to do well in this. You know, the yeah. the person really needs to be, you know, forward thinking. I think also part of the problem with what, and what you guys are describing is I, I sort of, I sort of got that feeling too, when I was reading the books in that this is where it's a problem that it's split up into four books. And, and I understand why they laid it out the way they did, but 
when you read the first book, it sort of tells you, like, here are all these things going on, and here are all the options that your players are going to have throughout this entire thing. And then you go to read book two, and it and it details the sort of NPCs and the, some of the enemy groups and all the different factions. And during that one, it also says, oh, and here's some of the things they're going to face, and here's how they might solve those problems. But it's not as... It's not cohesive because that's not one book. It's two different books. And then you get to the encounter books where it's only presenting you with the bare bones encounter information. And, I mean, they're very well written and all that stuff, but I just mean in terms of there's not as much background and all that. So if you really didn't do the prep or if it wasn't clear immediately or if your players did something that you weren't expecting, it's really hard to pull that together. Now, it sounds to me like um, the problem isn't that it's not one book. It's just that... The, and this goes along with uh, what what Stu said about information about the deck too. It's not, the problem is not that it's not in one book. It's just that you don't have all the information you want in one place. Right. Yeah. You know, you have to hunt around yeah. and peck and choose. And and, yeah. and was it Michael? You said you had to read read through it pretty thoroughly twice. Twice. In yeah, order to exactly. really, in, in order to really piece things together, which makes sense because you've read. And even though I've done that, I'm obviously still having questions. It's like, oh yeah, you're right. I missed that. I didn't see how that fit together. So, so it's it's yeah. a very complicated yeah. adventure. It is. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. But but rewarding. I mean, if you can really learn it, um, you know, it's it's just very cool. So I love the freedom. I think players will have a great time with it if they have a DM who really knows what's going on. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's start start to wind things down. Any last thoughts on the the madness of Gardmore at Gardmore Abbey? Um, I'll, I'll mention that I, I'm blogging as I go. I've, I've had three sessions so far, so I continue to blog about them. So anybody who wants to see some kind of act, actual play recaps, not not podcasts, but write ups, uh, feel free to check that out. And I think that um, I know one thing I struggled with was how am I going to get my party into it? And I have been running them through the Essentials Adventures in order. So the last thing they had done was Karen of the Winter King, at, at which they end up in Fallcrest. And uh, so in my case, I decided that the party was getting famous enough. They're a little bit higher level now, fifth, I think sixth level at that point, close to seventh, that um, Lord Padraig specifically sent a messenger for them saying, hey, would you guys come to Winterhaven? I have a job that needs some some talented adventurers for, and that kind of kicked things off. So that's one way you can get people in, is to have uh, have a patron literally send for the party, seek them out. Um, and I kind of liked it, too, in that it let the party feel like we have some fame, we're getting well-known, um, mm-hmm. we're awesome. And it worked out really well. They, they, they fit right away and jumped into it. And, and I think it's also worth uh, noting that as much as um, you know, we've been talking about some of the problems you had with it here just in the last few minutes. Um, all three of you, it sounds like, have nothing but high praise for the book in general. Oh, definitely. Oh, Very yeah. Nice. yeah. Especially when compared to some of the other um, uh, previous... I, I, haven't, I haven't run any of the, the essentials, um, we'll call them, uh, can, uh, adventure settings, but um, H1, H2, H3, uh, when you compare this to that, it's, it's just out of the water. I mean, there's no, there's really no comparison. Um, my, like I said, my favorite thing, or one of my favorite things, is that it fits really nicely into the Nintir Veil, so if you're already running something in the Nintir Veil, um, you don't really have to change it a lot. Uh, I would imagine that if you were going to run it in, uh, you know, the realms or abroad, you'd have to change it a little bit, but, you know, the D&D police aren't going to come to your house. And Dark Sun um, just out. You can't do it in Dark Sun, huh? No, it's the one setting where it doesn't quite fit. Yeah, yeah. There's no gods in Dark Sun, right? And so (laughs) it wouldn't be an abbey anymore. But you have a monster-infested ruin, maybe it would be a stretch. (laughs) The half half orc village would be difficult since there's no orcs. Yeah, you 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 could do it, but you'd have to make so many changes. I'm not sure it would be worth it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But 
I'll tell you that this is the only. So I, I pretty much I consume. I'm an, I, I am a voracious consumer of of adventures, but I almost never ever ever run a published adventure because I always just consume them so that I can get ideas and have different things going on. Been running games for a long time, um, but this this when I read it, I thought to myself, I really want to run this. And yeah. not just a piece of it, but I want to run it as a heroic tier campaign, as was, was I thought. Whereas I, I've, like, when I went through, like, the Tomb of Horrors and all that stuff, I thought, oh, I'll, I'll take a piece from here and I'll take a piece from there. And, you know, the Orcs of Stonefang Pass was a very good adventure module. I'll take some pieces of that. But this one, I read it and I thought, this is so beautifully done. I want to run it like it's written. Yeah. It, it, when you read When you read through it, you just get this... So I'm a, a TV producer, or I have been, and when everything gels, it's just this awesome sort of feeling, right? And that's how I felt when I'm reading this book. I'm like, this is pretty awesome. You know, everything fits together very nicely, and there's not a whole lot of work, aside from the things that we mentioned, um, that the DM really has to do. And it's, so it's a, it's a really, uh, just run it just for the sheer fact that it's awesome. <laughs> yep. Yeah. All right. I think it's time to start uh, wrapping this thing up then. Awesome. All right. Well, we want to thank our sponsor, Gamerati.com, and we want to thank our guests. Uh, Stu, where can we find you? I am on the internet. So you just. Uh, oh, I'm on Twitter. And- <laughs> 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 I, I, I don't really have a blog or anything like that. Um, I've tried a couple of blogs, but nothing's nothing's really cemented. Um, But I'm on, you know, Atlas2 at Twitter and on the Facebook, so just, you know, say hi. Very cool. And Michael. Uh, So you can find me on Twitter as OnlineDM1, and my blog, uh, by the time this is released, it looks like it will be migrated over to my new site, which is OnlineDungeonMaster.com, all one word. Very cool. And if people want to get a hold of us over here at The Tome Show, you can email us at thetomeshow at gmail.com. Call in to The Tome's Bizline at 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. That's 919-BizTome to leave a, a comment or question about anything that we've talked about or anything we're going to talk about. Or swing over to the forums at gamershavenpodcast.com. And you can find show notes or, of course, leave comments over on the website at thetomeshow.com. And that, my friends, is episode number 188, where we've managed to secure a long-lost vault, parlay with a rival adventuring group, and use powerful magic from a fancy deck of cards on this episode of... The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome. I'm on the wall.